Mark's Gospel, the seventh chapter. Mark chapter 7, and we'll be considering this morning verses 31 through 37. Mark 7, 31 through 37. Let us hear then God's breathed out word to you and I this morning. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. They begged him to lay his hand on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one, but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear, the mute speak. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's again bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word where we see the power that Jesus had and we see the, uh, the awesomeness of, his, of, the, of him proclaiming your power. And we just ask your blessing on us as we hear your word. Just bless Pastor Bob as he brings that to us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. I want to look at two things regarding uh, this passage. First of all, the place that is being mentioned here, and then secondly, the miracle that is performed. The place and the miracle. It's interesting that Scripture goes into quite a bit of detail about where this is all taking place. It tells us that Jesus went from Tyre, which is Gentile territory, through Sidon, which is Gentile territory, to Decapolis, which is also Gentile territory. Some theologians and experts on the the placing together of all the events that are given to us in the four Gospels report to us that approximately eight months of Jesus' ministry takes place in Gentile territory. Now, if Jesus were to have a 40-year pulpit ministry, taking eight months to be outside of that would not be that significant. But when we realize that the amount of time that Jesus was actually upon this earth, involved in public ministry, was somewhere around three years, eight months is a significant portion. Jesus did indeed come 
first for the children of Israel. We learned that the last time we were in Matthew chapter 7. But he also came for those under the table. He also came for those Gentiles. And we see it disclosed for us here. Jesus has traveled well out of Jewish territory. We are far away from Jerusalem. We have traveled a long ways from the reach of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law and the other religious leaders. We are moving about in Gentile territory. We now come, as the passage tells us in verse 31, to the region of the Decapolis, the region of the ten cities. He has been here before. It would be interesting to note how many of you remember what event was and did take place here. So I'll just pause for a minute, let you think what event had taken place in the region of Decapolis. And if you said, well, I think it's the healing of the man called Legion, the man with the many demons, the event of those demons being released into the herd of swine and running down the hill, you have the right event. That's the last time Jesus was here. And you'll recall that the response to that miracle was this. Leave. Get out of here. We don't want you here anymore, Jesus. That when the townspeople came, when they surrounded Jesus with the demoniac being healed and in his right mind, rather than pausing and giving God thanks for this miracle, they pushed Jesus on. Get out. Get out. And you'll recall that the man called Legion pleaded with Jesus to go with him. But Jesus said, no, I want you to go home. I want you to go to your home and I want you to tell people everything that has occurred to you. Jesus now comes back months later to the region of Decapolis. And I want you to leave your finger here at Mark 7, but go to Matthew chapter 15. Because Matthew also reports about this time, but does not spend a great deal of time with the particular miracle that we're looking at. It's found in Matthew chapter 15, starting at 29 through 31. Same time frame, same event. It's wedged between the Canaanite woman as was in Mark, and the feeding of the 4,000, which is where Mark 8, chapter, Mark 8 goes. Listen to what happens when Jesus comes to this area. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. And he went up on the mountain and sat down. And great crowds came to him, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others, and he put them at his feet, and he healed them, so that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, 
the lame walking and the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Understand that what we just read about were the same people who said, get out of here, leave. Now, suddenly, when Jesus returns, they're bringing everybody. We are told there are great crowds. Even here in Mark, we are reminded, and they brought to him a man. Even if it were one other who came, but there are many others who come to Jesus. Now what's the only thing that has occurred in Decapolis since Jesus left? Jesus hasn't been there. The disciples didn't go there. It's only one thing that happened. The man called Legion went to his home and did exactly that which the Lord had commanded him to do. He told everyone what Jesus had done for him. And when Jesus comes back, a great crowd, appears. The significance of one individual testifying to that which Jesus did for him produces a great crowd of people who come to Jesus in wonder and in awe. And how much more has not Christ done for us? He didn't just remove demons. He removed sin. He removed the curse. He removed God's wrath. He removed our damnation. And has given us his righteousness and the assurance of glory. And how many have we told? Jesus had a reason for telling Legion, you stay here and tell others. You don't need to come with me. You don't need to go on the mission field. Your mission field is right in your own community. Go there. Speak there. Talk there. Speak of what I have done. And that man's transformed, changed life. His testimony of Christ brought others to the feet of the Savior. That's where we're at. And now as we come to this place, as those who who are seeking now Jesus, come to him. The great crowds are there. One man in particular is noted in Mark. Matthew covers it generically, saying there are many, but note even in the Matthew passage that two times the word mute appears, testifying to us as well of the reality of this event. 
confirmed by those two witnesses then. What do we have with this miracle? Well, let's look at four things in regards to the miracle itself. First of all, the man. We meet here a man that we are told was deaf and had a speech impediment. Sometimes in Bible study, we've asked the question of your five senses, which one would you be willing to trade in the soonest? If you had to have some sort of some sort of problem with it, which of your five senses? What would you like to hold on to? What one would you like to keep at all costs? It's interesting when we ask that question. But generally, two things come back. Either people would say, I'd like to hold on to my eyesight as long as I possibly could. Others will say, I would like to hold on to my hearing as long as possible. For each of us, perhaps that's a different answer, but one certainly can sympathize with this man, can we not? A man who cannot hear and a man who has some sort of speech impediment that keeps him from being able to clearly speak to others. Some believe that because the idea of a speech impediment was there, that perhaps his deafness and his inability to speak clearly is the result of some sort of accident, that he had it at one time and lost it. But it could be that the speech impediment is simply this. He is unable to speak at all. Therefore, the term mute is used in Matthew. Imagine that. Imagine what this man's life must have been like. Unable to hear and unable to speak. Now, we put that in our modern context that it lessens somewhat the severity of it. Because in our modern context, we have sign language, we have keyboards, we have all sorts of ways to help and to assist in this. But understand, this is before any of that. This man really is alone. He's alienated. See, part of the problem is this. When you cannot hear, nobody knows it. You say, well, what's the problem with that? They come up to you and start talking and expecting you to respond. They're trying to communicate with you. They're, they're moving their mouth. They're saying words. And, and when you, you, you do this sort of thing, they get exasperated. They get angry. What's the matter with you? Why can't you hear me? They raise their voices. They get animated. But no matter how animated they get, no matter how angry they get, you can't hear them anyway. And you cannot tell them the problem. You cannot say to them, I cannot hear. 
You tend to withdraw. Become isolated. You don't want to deal with all of those confrontations of life that are going to come. See, with blindness, people know you're blind and are aware of it. They can see it. They, can, they, they, they see the fact that you cannot see. And therefore are careful. They're, they're sympathetic. But when you cannot hear, they assume you can hear, which creates even more of the loneliness. Perhaps some of you have experienced that in the last couple of weeks, traveling into either Guatemala or Costa Rica. You're trying to communicate, and although you're hearing sounds and they're hearing sounds, there's nothing getting through either way. It's frustrating. One of the interesting things to watch is how we often raise our voices, thinking if we just talk a little bit louder in English, they'll understand us better in Spanish. It doesn't happen that way. It doesn't happen. This man is alone. Think of how often, perhaps, in his life he has had to deal with simply some guttural sounds coming out of his mouth and wanting so much to say words but being unable to say anything that makes any sense to anyone. So you're thought of as a fool. You're thought of as indifferent. You're thought of as being, they just don't want to talk to me. They didn't even respond when I called and said hello. They pretended they didn't hear me. Now, they didn't pretend they didn't hear you. They didn't hear you. Do you see how offense so clearly comes in and plainly comes in? This is what this man has lived with. That is the man who is brought to Jesus. Secondly, I'd have you note the means of the miracle. What does Jesus do? Well, there's a number of things reported to us here that make this a very interesting miracle, is it not? Notice, first of all, verse 33. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. Jesus took him aside. He's out of sight from the crowd. Some commentators uh, suppose that what Jesus did is he took him off to the side and had his disciples stand around so that none of the curious crowd could look on. The man has suffered enough mockery and abuse over the years. Jesus doesn't, doesn't need to 
make that greater by somehow publicly calling attention to this man's problems. It's interesting because Jesus could have just said, be opened. That's all he needed to do. None of what we're reading here had to occur for the man to hear and to speak. The miracle is not dependent upon Jesus putting his fingers in the man's ears. It's not like, oh, if Jesus hadn't done that, the man wouldn't have heard. Jesus didn't have to spit and put his finger on the man's tongue. He didn't have to do that. That in no way makes the miracle happen. Jesus could have just said, be opened. But Jesus didn't. Why not? Why doesn't Jesus just say the word? Because sometimes the word requires action. Here is a man upon whom Jesus is having compassion. The man doesn't know and understand what's going on. He just had some friends bring him to Jesus. Doesn't know what this is. What's taking place? What are you doing, Jesus? In order that the man might understand, in order that Jesus might meet his individual need. Underline that. In order that Jesus might demonstrate to this man what this man needed. He doesn't just say, be open. He takes the man aside. He removes him from being a spectacle. He removes him from being the object of pointing. He brings him off to the side. And then to communicate to the man what is about to happen and what is about to occur, Jesus, with great compassion, with great sensitivity to this man's situation. Because the man can't hear what Jesus is saying anyway. Puts his fingers in the man's ears. And what's interesting about the verb that's used here is it's not he kind of nice, he gently. No, he thrust his fingers into his ears. As if to demonstrate to the man, this is what I am dealing with. I am dealing with that which has been thrust upon you. I am dealing with you. Understand, I'm going to do something with your ears. And he does so in a physical way. He wets his finger, puts it on the man's tongue. I am going to deal with your tongue. Because he can't say the words because the man cannot hear the words. He demonstrates to the man that which he is about to do. And having demonstrated to this man what he is about to do, he looks to heaven to tell the man this is where it's coming from. 
This is where the power, this is where the healing comes from. Did he have to do that? Of course not. Does he always do it? No. Why does he do it here? Because the man cannot hear the words of Jesus. His situation in life has made him incapable of hearing the word. So Jesus demonstrates the word to him so that the man can understand not only what is going to happen, but where it's coming from. But there is one other thing, isn't there? And he looked up to heaven. He sighed. The man can see Jesus just heaving. The man can know that this is something of which Jesus is deeply concerned. This is not something to simply be passed by quickly. Yeah, let's deal with this one because I got a whole bunch of them lined up. There is so much conveyed to us and to the man in the sigh of Jesus. Did he have to? No. Does he? Yes. This is not the way it was supposed to be. We did not form and create man to not hear and to not speak. We, we did not form man out of the dust of the ground. To be alone, to be unable to communicate with others. We did not create man as a sinful being, but sin has intervened into this world, and where there is sin, there is despair, there is loneliness, there is deafness, there is muteness. Oh, it's a sigh far beyond the man that is before him. It's a sigh of the people his own people who have rejected him. It's a sigh for us.
But it doesn't end with a sigh. We have then the miracle. You see, up to this point, the man has not heard a thing. In fact, Jesus now proclaims, Ephatha, that is, be open. And the ver verb there means be continually open, be continually speaking, not just for one occurrence, not just for one moment, but for the rest of your life. Be open, be open, be open. The man hears not a word of that. But Jesus had communicated it all. But the very next phrase tells us, and his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. What a miracle. No wonder the crowd is astonished. No wonder back there in Matthew they're going, what great things the Lord has done. But he charges them. Don't tell. It's clear. It's a directive. Don't tell. <laughs> but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. I'm never sure what to make of these passages in the final analysis. Jesus has done this on other occasions and he will do it again. Somebody who is healed, he says, do not tell anyone. He has his own reasons, his own purposes, and then we'll read. And yet they went out and told. We kind of shake our heads and go, why, why didn't these people obey? Well, let's put it the opposite way, shall we? about those of us who have been healed, not from the physical problems of life, but we've been healed spiritually, fully, completely, eternally. And we've been given the command, go and tell. Be my witnesses. And our mouths remain quiet. Which is the greater horror? Which is the greater sin? Which is the greater evil, to be told not to tell and yet proclaim Christ's greatness? Or to be told to tell of Christ's greatness and to remain mute, as if we had not heard? See, there is a message going on in this miracle, is there not, in this episode. This is very symbolic. This is symbolic of the Jews of Jesus' day. They were not hearing Jesus. They were not confessing Jesus. They were not listening to the word. But we dare raise a finger against them, do we? For how many of us are not deaf to the word of God? We don't read it. We don't study it. We don't faithfully listen to its proclamation. We think we know it and we'll go by what we know. But we're not going to immerse ourselves in it. We are in effect in many occasions deaf to the word of God. 
sermons can be preached about something that dealing with our own lives and we just turn a deaf ear to it. We, like the Jews of old, think we are so stubbornly right. We will not let the Word of God penetrate our heart and our life to see what it is that God is truly saying to each one of us. And I say that to myself as well. And then we remain so mute. We remain so quiet. We won't even tell somebody we work with about the greatness of our God in saving us through Jesus Christ. We won't communicate it to our neighbor. We remain mute. We are so silent. And yet, as we come to this passage, we see the tenderness of Christ dealing not with just this deaf and mute man. But this is the way Christ comes to you and I. With our deafness, with our muteness, he comes to us with his individual compassion. And he speaks to us in the way that our own hearts might hear him speak. In accents clear and distinct. Jesus touched this man even as Jesus desires this morning to touch you and me. Oh, not by his hand reaching down out of heaven, but he desires to touch us here. That as we come to this table, he wants us to see clearly what it is he has done. See, that's what these sacraments are. They're the signs. This is the way God visibly portrays his individual compassion to each one of us. He shows us Christ crucified for our sins. He wants us to know what it is he has done for us so that our mouths too might be opened in praise and glory to him. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word and for its reminder this morning that you indeed are sovereign over all things. But your sovereignty is not a stiffness. Your sovereignty is not a coldness. Your sovereignty is one of individual compassion for each one of us. And so we pray, Father, that as we come to this table, that we might know of your individual compassion for our heart, for our soul, for our lives. In Christ's name we pray. And God's people say, Amen.